0: Last time we spoke about Operation Flintlock, the invasion of Kwajalein. The Americans had unleashed an incredible amount of air, sea, and land forces against the Marshall Islands. The amphibious invasion of most of the islands saw little resistance, but on Kwajalein, they would meet a very determined enemy. The Americans achieved strategic surprise. Artillery preparation, naval gunfire, and aerial bombardment had successfully softened up the target in a fashion unexcelled at any other time in the Pacific War. The ship-to-shore movement had been conducted expeditiously and without too many hiccups. Supplies flowed ashore and to the front lines relatively smoothly and without interruption. The infantry engineer teams assisted by tanks moved steadily clearing the enemy from shelters and pillboxes, and American casualties had been fairly light. Altogether, the battle for Guadjaline represented the ideal of all military operations. Then we covered a bit of the Burma Front, where the Allies unleashed an offensive, while the Japanese unleashed their own, Operation Hago. This episode is Operation Hailstone, the Smashing of Truck. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. Before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com Kings and Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released part two in my five-part series on the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. That episode highlights the resistance of Majeshan, a quite interesting and heroic story. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where you can find more than 13 exclusive podcasts and ongoing. The polls are up for this month's exclusive podcast, and I think it's going to be a very bizarre story about how Japan tried to create a Israel in Shanghai. Yeah, you heard that one right. So come on over and check it out. For those who came rushing over to see the scene at Line, descriptions given were comically noted as, A hell of a Spruance haircut with some Mitcher shampoo. Looking down at Roy and Namor from his Hellcat, one pilot recalled. It looked like the moon, or a ploughed ground. The beach and roads were strewn with the charred and misshapen remains of equipment, tanks, and armored vehicles. I don't think there was a stick of anything standing. It looked just completely beaten up. A sailor who visited one of the captured atolls had observed. Palm trees were shredded where shells and bob fragments had made direct hits, leaving stumps that looked like old-fashioned shaving brushes stuck, bristles up in the sand. Holland Smith was greatly annoyed by the number of sightseers who came to Quagelline, stating Regular tourist haunt. The big army and navy brass from Pearl Harbor descended on us like flies. The photographers had a gala, day snapping pictures against the background of shelled buildings while visiting brass hunted for samurai swords and other souvenirs. Meanwhile, a single battalion was assigned to capture Majuro, and their battle would consist of just walking up some beaches completely unopposed. The Japanese garrison had pulled out a week earlier. Admiral Hill declared the atoll secure only two hours after the landings were made. It was a huge anchorage that would accommodate all the mobile floating logistical assets of the Service Squadron 10, and for the time being became the principal base for the 5th Fleet. Chelut, Millet, Watye, Maleolap, which had sizable Japanese garrisons, would not be invaded by the Allied forces. Since the Japanese were now cut off from the outside assistance, the garrisons were doing no harm to the Allied war effort, so they would just be left alone, thus saving many American and Japanese lives by not forcing the issue. However, Eniwitok Atoll would not be bypassed, because she held the second largest lagoon in the Marshall Islands. As Admiral Nimitz and his commanders considered the repercussions of their surprisingly quick and low-cost victory, they soon elected to accelerate the schedule of future operations in the region. Eniwitok had been originally slapped for May, but it seemed obvious the Japanese power in the marshals was crumbling a lot faster than anticipated. Consequently, Admiral Nimitz knew it would be necessary to capture the atoll to give shelter to all the ships he intended to deploy westward in the drive against the Japanese inner empire. Since it now seemed Brigadier General Thomas Watson's 8,000 reserve troops of the 22nd Marines and the 106th Regiment would no longer be required, Admiral Spruance and Hill began preparing them for the invasion of Eniwetok. However, any we talk was within Truk's air combat radius, thus to hit any we talk, they would first have to neutralize what was being called the Gibraltar of the Pacific, that being Truk. Prior to World War II, Truk was neither well developed nor well defended. Although the United States feared the Japanese had been fortifying Truk for nearly two decades, in truth, the Japanese largely ignored Truk after capturing it during World War I. When the Pacific War started on December the 7th of 1941, only a few coastal batteries and some naval minefields added since November of 1939 covered the passes into the Truk Lagoon. Few other defenses, including inadequate anti-aircraft artillery, protected it. To the United States Navy, Truk appeared impregnable, and sailors spoke of the name in awe-struck tones. This was because Truk needed few artificial defenses to make it virtually impregnable to surface invasion. Truk was a naturally sheltered and easily defended anchorage, large enough to accommodate the entire IGN, and out of range of enemy naval guns. Their defense, however, depended on the air garrison, one of the strongest in Japan's southeast Pacific theater. Dangerous long-range reconnaissance flights flown by B-24s from bases in the Gilberts in December of 1943 managed to bring back some photos that allowed intelligence officers to map out the air bases and the various anchorages in the lagoon. Analysts thus began to realize there was not as much as to be expected, and thus Operations Catchpole and Hailstone were born. Catchpole would be the invasion of we Talk, while Hailstone would be the neutralization of Truck, and as a secondary objective, to discern if Truck could be bypassed similarly as Rabal or Moliolap was. Operation Hailstone would be bigger than December's raid against Quajaline. Vice Admiral Raymond Spruance's 5th Fleet would deploy Task Group 50.9 and three task forces of 58. This would include four fast carrier task groups. Task Force 50 was under Spruance himself, while Admiral Mitscher had command over the carrier task force. Spruance would also have overall command over the operation. Fleet carriers Enterprise, Yorktown, Essex, Intrepid, Bunker Hill, and light carriers, Wood. Cabot and Monterey would be launching aircraft in the operation. Admiral Lee would control a fast-striking force consisting of light carriers, cowpens, and battleships Iowa, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Alabama, South Dakota, and North Carolina. Ten submarines would be lurking like sharks around truck independently, seeing if they could possibly intercept some IGN forces trying to escape or rescue. They could also help U.S. downed pilots during the attack. To prepare for the operation, on February the 4th, a lone PBY Liberator launched off Torokina's airfield to carry out reconnaissance of Truk. The photos indicated that Truk's lagoon held a battleship, two aircraft carriers, six heavy cruisers, and four light cruisers, possibly 20 destroyers, and 12 submarines. The PBY was spotted and fired on by warships within the harbor, and several fighters were launched to intercept, but only one, a floatplane fighter, came even close to actually hitting them. The pilot managed to hightail it out safely. The American reconnaissance flight alerted Admiral Koga that they could expect a very heavy raid at any moment, so he ordered all of his warships to depart the lagoon before February the 21st, the date that they predicted the Americans would hit. The departure was extremely hasty. Two auxiliary aircraft carriers had just arrived to truck the previous month. When the departure order came, they haphazardly unloaded their aircraft in order to leave quickly. The aircraft were left parked nose to tail on the airport aprons and taxiways. Cargo ships equally hastily unloaded stores so they could leave. Fuel barges were drained to the top off of the tanks of the combined fleet's major units. They had to be tediously refilled from tankers, a task made very difficult by choppy seas kicking up rough weather between February thirteenth and the fifteenth. On February the 12th, most of the combined fleet's major units had left truck for Palo. The light cruiser Agano, previously damaged and under repair, could not depart until February 16th. Its departure was so late it would be caught and sunk by the newly arrived U.S. submarine screen. Other ships were still preparing to leave, their departure delayed by bad weather and slow refueling. Of those ships still trapped at truck were the 4th Fleet of Vice Admiral Kobayashi Masami, consisting of light cruiser Naka, destroyers Makaze and Oite alongside many units of the 8th Fleet and several transports. There was also, of course, various auxiliary, destroyers, repair ships, transports, and the 6th Fleet of Vice Admiral Takagi Takeo's headquarters. On February the 5th, Admiral Hill learned he would be commanding the Eniwetok expeditionary forces, and he had less than two weeks to prepare for them. Moving up the invasion of Eniwitok required stripping the new garrisons of Quajaline and Roy Namur of a lot of manpower and supplies. The landing boat crews were green and had no real training with the troops. As recalled by General Watson, the infantry, amphibian tractors, amphibian tanks, tanks, aircraft, supporting naval ships, and most of the staffs concerned had never worked together before. Yet, we will not be talking about the invasion of Andy talk in this episode. That'll be a next episode. What we're going to be diving into is Operation Hailstone. Operation Hailstone had been long on the American drawing board. On December the 26th of 1943, Admiral Nimitz had informed Admiral King that he thought the operation would become feasible by the following April, but he pledged to do it earlier if circumstances allowed. Much depends on the extent of damage inflicted on enemy in all areas in the next two months. Located 669 miles southwest of Eniwetok, Truk was a colossal atoll. It held a cluster of around a dozen islands near the center of its lagoon. Around 2,000 Micronesian natives lived on the islands, mostly in thatch huts, on grassy plains and beaches. There was a sense of dread amongst the aviators and crewmen of the task forces assigned to the operation. After all, they were to attack the Mystery Base, Truck had acquired something of a reputation as an unsayable fortress. It was thought to be a major hub of Japanese air power, defended by hundreds of crack pilots and zero fighters. The task forces sortied westward on February the 12th, and no Japanese would even bother their approach. The carriers got to their assembly point 90 miles northeast of Dublin before sunrise on February the 17th. At 4.43 a.m., the operation kicked off when five fleet carriers launched 72 Hellcats to go knock out the enemy air power prior to sending in the bombers. This was a new technique Admiral Mitcher had concocted himself. The Japanese were caught completely unprepared. No Japanese aircraft were even in the air when the radar picked them up. The IGN's 22nd and 26th air flotillas were on shore leave, and their radar had difficulty detecting low-flying aircraft a weakness Allied intelligence definitely exploited. Despite this, the Japanese tossed around 90 aircraft, half of which attempted to intercept the U.S. fighters without any coordination. Within just minutes of combat, 30 Japanese fighters were shot down. By the end of the engagement, a total of 55 would be destroyed. The Americans only lost four Hellcats, and at least one of them, according to VF-6 pilot Alex Vercrero, One was a victim of friendly fire. There was dogfights all over the place. I even saw one of our Hellcats shoot another Hellcat down. It was a great deflection shot, but one of our guys just shot first before being sure, and this other poor pilot was forced to parachute out. In the course of the action, I saw a number of Japanese parachutes in the air the American pilots had expected to be facing 200 Japanese aircraft. According to estimates given in post-war interrogations, the Japanese had 68 operational airplanes on the Moen Field, 27 on Dublon Field, 20 on Eaton, and 46 on Param, for a total of 161. Parked on the big field at Eaton were some 180 aircraft that were damaged, most grounded for lack of spare parts or immobilized for lack of air crews. Most of these would be destroyed on the ground. Although Admiral Koga anticipated the Americans would make a move against Truk, air and naval forces were not on alert when the American planes suddenly appeared overhead. According to Masataka Chihaya, a staff officer with the 4th Fleet, the pilots, ground personnel, and ship's crews had been kept in 24-hour readiness since the overflight of the two Marine PBYs two weeks earlier and had reached a state of collective exhaustion. Another factor... For this catastrophe was that of morale, and even discipline had eroded since the withdrawal of the heavy warships. Pilots had refused to climb into their cockpits when ordered. Many had gone absent without leave. The atoll's commander, Vice Admiral Masami Kobayashi, had apparently concluded that the American fleet was still engaged in the marshals and authorized a downgrade in the alert level. On February the sixteenth, many pilots and other personnel had left their barracks for some R&R. The morning of the American raid would find a large proportion of trucks' aviators asleep in the atoll's largest town, on the island of Dublin, who had partied pretty hard the night before. They got really drunk. Their only means of returning to the airfield on islands like Eaton was by ferry, and the ferry could not accommodate all of them at once. As you can imagine, this was a complete disaster. Many aircraft, both on Eden and at the airfields at Moan and Param Islands, had been disarmed and drained of their fuel. Quite simply put, Kobayashi fucked up, really bad, and his failure to keep his forces on alert put an end to his naval career. He was relieved of command and then forced to retire from active service. Having swept the skies of opposition by 6 a.m., the Hellcats began strafing the seaplane base at Dublin and the airfields at Mount Eden and Param, successfully destroying another 40 aircraft on the ground. As the fighter's sweep was ending, 18 Avengers emerged dropping their payloads onto the airfields, neutralizing trucks' airpower. As such, the living hell created by strafing and bombs saw a total of 125 operational aircraft and 110 air arsenal aircraft get destroyed or seriously damaged on the ground. With trucks' air power neutralized, the next American objective was to hit the shipping in the lagoon. So the carriers then began launching full-deck load strikes, staggering the launches so that there would be aircraft over truck virtually continuously for the rest of the entire day. James D. Ramage, flying a Dauntless of the VB-10, noted that several Zeros flew by him without even offering combat. He assumed that they were dispirited by the one-sided results of the air fight, and they were determined to survive it. This was a syndrome that had become increasingly common during the later stages of the South Pacific air campaign. Due to the lack of air cover or warning, many merchant ships were caught at anchor with only the island's anti-aircraft guns for defense. At 7.30 a.m., the first shipping began to be attacked. Yorktown's bombers rapidly sank the cargo ship Fuchikawa Maru, and then bombed the submarine tender, Rio de Janeiro Maru, which was hit by a 1,000-pound bomb dropped by Yorktown SPD Dauntlesses east of Uman. She would stay afloat, but would sink the next day. Another submarine tender, the Hian Maru, headquarters of Vice Admiral Takagi Takio, was hit twice, but the ship would successfully survive the relentless American attacks, then offloading Takagi on Dublin after sunset. By 9.23 a.m., Lee's battleships, heavy cruisers, and destroyers came in close to try and catch escaping ships. Some Japanese vessels attempted to flee via the atoll's northern pass, but they were bottled up by the aerial attacks and by Lee's warships. Most of them would be successfully sunk by 1 o'clock. The famed Marine fighter ace, Major Gregory Pappy Boyington, of the Black Sheep Squadron, VMF-214, had been shot down tragically. He was captured off Raval a week before Hailstone. Alongside other POWs, he was flown into truck while the raid was developing. As the Betty bomber carrying them rolled to a stop, suddenly Pappy and his fellow prisoners were thrown onto the airstrip. They looked up and they were shocked to see Hellcats flying low over the airfield, walking .50 caliber fire across the parked planes. The bomber from which they had just been ejected went off in a sheet of flame. The Americans were shoved into a pit by the side of the airfield, and they watched the action from overhead, and they cheered on the attackers. Pappy recalled this. There was so much excitement, I couldn't do any differently. I just had to see those NIP planes, some of the light planes like Zeros, jump off the ground from explosion of our bombs and come down clang, just like a sack of bolts and nuts. The planes caught on fire and the ammunition in them began going off. There were 20mm cannon shells and 7.7s bouncing and ricocheting all over this pit. Some of these hot pieces were tossed back out of the pit with our hands. Enterprise dive bombers dropped 1,000-pound armor-piercing bombs on targets chosen from aerial photos taken earlier. The planes hurtled down through flak bursts and smashed the stationary ships. A bomb hit the stern of the 13,000-ton Hoyomaru. The 7,000-ton aviation store ship, Maru, was lit up. A VT-6 Avenger flew over the ammunition ship, Kokumaru, and landed a bomb densetter amid ship. The target went up in a huge rolling ball of flame and engulfed the plane and destroyed it. The shockwave was powerful enough to rock Lt. Ramage's aircraft more than 2,000 feet overhead. He recalled this. It was, I think, the biggest explosion I'd ever seen, other than the atomic bombs. It was just an enormous blast. Five ships managed to escape the carnage within the lagoon. The light cruiser Katori, auxiliary cruiser Akagi Maru, destroyers Mayakazi and Noaki, and the small trawler Shonen Maru. Unfortunately for them, they ran directly into Lee's force at 1.30 p.m., Only the destroyer, Nowaki, managed to outrun the Americans as she fired a spread of torpedoes trying to cover her way. Spruance was ultimately the one who ordered the surface ships to come into the combat area, and this resulted in close calls for friendly fire. Mitcher would continuously order pilots to hold back their payloads against fleeing ships and to wait for identification first. Many of the aviators would accuse Admiral Spruance of seeking to have the big guns get their taste of the blood. But the big guns would basically only finish off some crippled ships. Minneapolis and New Orleans sank two immobilized ships with three to four salvos. Meanwhile, the USS New Jersey nearly took two torpedo hits from a sinking IGN destroyer. American ships came to the ailing IGN vessel trying to pick up survivors but almost all the Japanese sailors took their own lives. The Iowa would take a bomb hit from a Japanese aircraft, but suffered little damage. If one or more of the American surface ships were to be hit by torpedoes, it may have very well cost Admiral Spruance's command. The ordinarily conservative fleet commander had behaved with impulsive bravado, it seems for no better reason than... As they would say, a Black Shoe's inborn desire to claim a piece of the action for the quote-unquote big guns. Admiral Sherman's tactful conclusion was this. This expedition accomplished little and only complicated the attacks by the carrier planes. Lieutenant Ramage would be less gentle with his words. So the big battleships finally drew blood against a cruiser that was almost dead in the water. It must have been a great victory. The death toll for the first day of Operation Hailstone was more than 20 Japanese ships sunk. But the fun was not over. 6 to 7 radar-equipped B-5Ns capable of tracking ships at night, launched perhaps from Rabaul or Saipan, hunted the U.S. carriers. They were spotted on radar as they approached the U.S. ships. Night fighters attempted to intercept them, but they were unable to find them in the darkness. The task force maneuvered to avoid the incoming bombers, which would have worked if the Japanese were using aircraft blindly flying a standard search pattern. However, the radar-equipped Nakajimas detected the course change, and they continued to home in on the carriers. Between 7 and 10 p.m., the aircraft made several approaches to the U.S. ships, but they were kept at a distance by heavy radar-directed anti-aircraft fire. The USS Yorktown launched a night fighter F4U Corsair at 9.20pm to intercept a particularly persistent Nakajima, vectoring the fighter towards a torpedo bomber. But for once, the Japanese used radar to better advantage than the United States, so the Corsair never made contact with the Nakajima. The Nakajima was able to press its attack, launching a torpedo at the USS Intrepid. It struck near the starboard quarter, jamming the rudder, killing 11 aboard, and wounding another 17. The B-5N that dropped the torpedo apparently escaped unharmed. The USS Intrepid was in no danger of sinking, but she would have to make her way to Majuro for safety. The Americans then launched their own night attack on Japanese shipping in the truck Atoll. At 2 a.m., the USS Enterprise launched a flight of 12 radar-equipped Avengers to attack the surviving Japanese ships in the lagoon. Each aircraft was armed with four 500-pound bombs. The concept of performing a low-altitude night attack, with the planes guided to the targets by radar alone, had been studied and discussed but never actually done. It required the pilots to navigate to truck on instruments alone. Now once over the lagoon, they circled over the anchorages until radar echoes provided an image of their targets. The mission would be a tactical breakthrough, unprecedented in the annals of aviation or naval history. Lieutenant Commander William Martin, who trained the airmen, recalled this. Radar displays at the time required an operator to do a great deal of interpreting. It was like learning a new language. Instead of being a polar plot, looking down on it like a map, the cathode ray tube just gave indications that there was an object out there. After considerable practice, a radar operator could determine that there was a ship there and its approximate size. You related the blip on the radar scope to the image of the ship. In about 30 minutes, the Avengers made 25 passes over to and eaton scoring 13 direct hits on ships. Two on the rocky inlets, mistaken for ships, and several near-misses. As a result, around 12 vessels were sunk during the attack, including the Heian Maru. It was a remarkable performance by a dozen aircraft in the United States Navy's first carrier-launched night attack. The following dawn, Mitcher sent another fighter sweep, though it would not be very effective as the Japanese had basically no surviving aircraft in the area. 200 aircraft met negligible air opposition over the atoll as they worked over the remaining targets at their own leisure. Hundreds of incendiaries were dropped on smoking airfields, parking areas, and hangars. The bombers paid special attention to the fuel tank farms, which had been spared on the first day in order to prevent smoke from obscuring visibility. By noon, Japanese resistance was almost non-existent, and there were no more worthwhile targets, so Spruance and Mitscher decided to call a halt to the attacks, as it was considered that Truk no longer posed a threat to the Aniwetok invasion. Hailstone cost the Americans 12 fighters, 7 torpedo bombers, 6 dive bombers, and 2 float planes. 29 aircrew died, and 28 sailors died aboard the Intrepid. The operation had been one of the most smashing carrier raids of the entire Pacific War. Though most of Japan's heavy naval units had fled the lagoon, the Americans had sunk three light cruisers, four destroyers, three auxiliary, or training cruisers, and six other naval auxiliaries. In addition, around 30 merchant ships were sent to the bottom of the lagoon, including five precious oil tankers. The total shipping losses approached 200,000 tons, and many of those vessels had been laden with munitions and other supplies that could have been recovered. 17,000 tons of fuel went up in the attack, at a time when fuel was running very short for the Japanese. The Japanese had lost 249 aircraft, most on the ground. As Rear Admiral Samuel Elliott Morrison would later write, Courage and determination, the Navy had shown from the first. But in the Marshals, it demonstrated mastery of the art of amphibious warfare, of combining air, surface, submarine, and ground forces to project fighting power irresistibly across the seas. The strike on truck demonstrated a virtual revolution in naval warfare. The aircraft carrier emerged as the capital ship of the future, with unlimited potentialities. The IGN Combined Fleet would never return to Truck. The 4th Fleet headquarters remained at Truk, but its warships had left, and the transports carrying the 52nd Division to Truk, some of which had arrived on February 19th, they hastily unloaded and quickly departed. Vice Admiral Kobayashi Masami was held responsible for the defeat and would consequently be relieved of his command, never to return to active duty. But that's it for the Marshall Islands campaign for now, as we are now going to be shifting over to the South Pacific. In preparation for the invasion of the Admiralty Islands, the Allies first would need to seize the Green Islands, situated 117 miles southeast of Rabaul. Admiral Halsey had been tasked with landing General Barrowclough's 3rd New Zealand Division, consisting of the 14th Brigade, Special Army Tank Squadron, 17th Field Regiment, 29th Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment, 144th Independent Battery, the 53rd Anti-Tank Battery, the 967th Coastal Artillery Battalion, Naval Base Unit No. 11, and other supporting units. Halsey assigned Admiral Wilkinson to command the operation. He would transport the men in three echelons using a plethora of destroyers, destroyer transports, and countless other landing craft. Airsoles would be providing coverage alongside Admiral Merrill's Task Force 39, consisting of light cruisers Cleveland, Columbia, Montiplier, and the destroyers Charles, Osborne, Dyson, Stanley, Spence, and Converse. There would also be Admiral Ainsworth's Task Force 38. Admiral Wilkinson's echelons departed Vela Lavella and the Treasury Islands on February the 12th and the 13th. They met near Bougainville, and together they advanced towards the departure line off Barrahan Island. The Americans expected Rabaul's air force to be greatly depleted by this point, but the convoy was still harassed by 15 Vals and 17 Zeros during the night of February the 14th. Ten Vals managed to score a hit and three near-misses against cruiser St. Louis, Killing 23 men and causing moderate damage. The bombers also tried attacking the landing craft, but apart from a near miss against LST 446, the landing force would proceed quickly and smoothly. The landing craft began taking off on the morning of February the 15th as airsole fighters gained air supremacy over the skies of Nissan Island. 32 fighters from Squadron 14 of the RNZAF, commanded by Squadron Leader S.G. Quill, and Squadrons 1 and 18, commanded by Squadron Leader. J.A. Altfield, both kept 18 aircraft continuously over the island until dusk, flying sorties from the airfields at Empress Augusta Bay. Twelve Japanese bombers would be reported shot down. This was the last air opposition encountered during Operation Square Peg. With such a numerous fleet sending thousands of troops ashore with impunity only 150 miles from Rabaul, this certainly proved Air was a force to be reckoned with. Ferried ashore in LCIs and LCVPs into the lagoon in southern Barahun Island, the troops would disembark at several landing beaches around Pokanian and the Tagalayan plantations. Within just two hours, about 5,800 New Zealanders went ashore. Patrols were sent out, and carrying parties began moving stores off the beaches further inland. As the beachhead was established, there was only a brief resistance from several Japanese barges around Sirat Island before a perimeter was established. By nightfall, in addition to the aforementioned troops, Wilkerson also landed 58 jeeps, 69 trucks, 44 guns, 8 valentine tanks, 426 tons of petrol and drums, 2,000 gallons of fresh water in tins, and 267 tons of rations. The following day, as the Kiwis fanned out along Nisan Island, about 21 Japanese were encountered on Sirat. Late that afternoon, natives reported that an unspecified number of Japanese had taken refuge on the densely wooded island of Sirat and the task of clearing that island was assigned to B Company, led by Captain D. Dalton. The Japanese were swiftly dealt with, but the Kiwis would suffer five deaths and three wounded in the firefight. On February the 18th, patrols from the 37th Battalion reached the northern tip of Nissan Island and reported it clear, while on the 30th, the 35th Battalions dealt with a large group of Japanese at the southern point of the island. The Kiwis accidentally came upon the remaining Japanese garrison on the 20th of February in an area previously cleared by other patrols. It was along the coast, near a few deserted native huts, passing as the village of Tanahiran on the map. On February 19th, the remaining 100-man Japanese garrison signed off on the radio. We are charging the enemy and beginning radio silence. The Kiwis suffered three deaths and 11 wounded. The Japanese had been overwhelmed and completely annihilated. The next day, the second echelon of Admiral Ford arrived. Organized resistance had ceased. In total, about 120 Japanese had been killed against the 13 killed and 24 wounded for the Allied forces. Now, with the Green Islands under their control, the Allied forces needed to do something about the 1,200 friendly native Melanesians, whose tarot gardens and coconut groves were about to be turned into some airfields. The answer was a temporary evacuation to Guadalcanal. This was explained to the natives' headmen, And as the Melanesians are born rovers, the prospect of a boat ride to the Solomons and free food was actually highly pleasing to them. Accordingly, Grandpa Roger Cutler's LSTs of the Second Echelon took on the function for evacuating the natives. The job was done so well, by the time the flotilla of Melanesian Mayflowers reached Guadalcanal, the 1147 embarked had increased to 1148. The Green Islands would prove to be a very useful link in the strangling of Rabaul, with the PT boat base immediately open on February the 17th and a new fighter strip being completed by March the 4th. This was going to be the first time that Kaving was within range of aerosol fighters and bombers. But now we're actually going to have to shift over to the boys on New Guinea. The last time we were in New Guinea, the Australians were in hot pursuit of General Nakano's men. On February the 3rd, the 30th Battalion of Lieutenant Colonel William Perry Okanen had been set out from Singor to take over the 4th Battalion at Crossington. The next day, the Australians reached Namau, and the day after that they established a new supply beach at Budubudu. On that same day, orders came in stating that all commanders must make every endeavor to capture prisoners. This prompted Cameron to call off the Papuans from leading the advance, and then he sent the leading Papuan platoon to reconnoiter in the inland trails while the infantry led the advance on the right. The men advanced sluggishly as a result of a mixture of muddy tracks and enemy corpses. From my readings, apparently there were so many enemy dead from marching for their lives that they were actually mixing into the mud trails. They reached Ronji 1 on the 6th and then Ronji 2 on the 7th. During the afternoon, the Papuans reached Galley 1, where they managed to kill 24 Japanese stragglers, and they captured three prisoners. Each day, the Papuans killed on average about 10 to 15 Japanese, but it was not until the 8th when they encountered a real Japanese rearguard at Weber Point. The Papuans performed a frontal assault, killing 53 Japanese and capturing another four prisoners. By the night of February the 9th, the leading company was 2,000 yards west of Ma and 3,500 yards away from America's most forward outpost at Yogomai, where they fought another larger group of Japanese. 61 Japanese were killed, and 9 prisoners were taken that day. And on the 10th, the 30th Battalion had at last reached Yagomai. Here they finally linked up with the American force at Sedor. It was then decided that the 5th Division would not operate west of Yaut, so Brigadier Cameron was instructed to mop up the Tapin and Nakopo areas. Meanwhile, the 35th Battalion advanced towards Buana, where they would kill another 31 Japanese. On the 18th, the Australians killed 40 Japanese at Kaputamon and another 142 in the Tapan area. Three days later, they attacked Wandeluk, where they would kill 57 Japanese. After the 22nd, the pursuit was largely carried out by the Papuans towards Nokopo. During this time, until March the 1st, the 8th Brigade reported killing 734 Japanese. They would find 1,793 dead, and they would take 48 prisoners. The Australians and Papuan had suffered three deaths and five wounded. Despite his losses, General Nakano and his men had yet again cheated death. In a letter written on the 21st of March, Lieutenant General Frank Berryman wrote, About 8,000 semi-starved, ill-equipped, and dispirited Japanese by Sador. It was disappointing that the fruits of victory were not fully reaped and that once again the remnants of the 51st Division escaped our clutches. Meanwhile, General Morissette had been planning to relieve the 7th Division with the fresh 11th Division of Major General Alan Bose. Yet, General Vasey convinced him instead to let him take over the drive on Medang by the end of January. Now the 58th-59th Battalion relieved the 2-10th in the right-hand sector from the 4,100 feature through Crater Hill and the Kankiri Saddle to Cam's Hill, with the task of patrolling the area east of Cam's Hill, the headwaters of the Mosa River, and forward along the upper Midjim River Valley to Papua 2. The 5760th relieved the 2 and 9th on the left with positions on the 4,100 feature, and the Protheros and Shaggy Ridge, and the task of patrolling forward from Canning Saddle, along the high ground west of Midjim. The 24th Battalion would relieve the 2 and 12th but be in reserve. Now, Brigadier Hammer had the task of patrolling forward from the Kankiri Saddle. As typical for New Guinea, the terrain facing them would be rather formidable. Hammer had this to say in his report. The country in the Finestri Ranges is rugged, steep, precipitous, and covered with dense rainforest. It rains heavily almost every day, thus making living conditions uncomfortable. By day it's hot, by night three blankets are necessary. There is, therefore, a constant battle with mud, slush, rain, and cold. To allow freedom of movement over this mud, it was necessary to corduroy every track in the area. By late February, Hammer dispatched a number of small patrols towards Amusan and Sepatu. On the right flank, Lt. Brewster, with a patrol from the 58th/59th, investigated the valley of the Mosa River as far as the Amusan and he returned after four days reporting the area was clear. In the central area, a patrol from the 5760th rushed with an enemy patrol near Cepatou, with some support from the guns of the 4th Field Regiment. On the 28th, a patrol from the 5760th, led by Lieutenant Bessier, attacked Cepatou three times with supporting artillery fire, but all of these attempts to enter the village were repulsed. On February the 26th, the 58th-59th Battalion was instructed to establish a company patrol base on the Amusan to send out a platoon reconnaissance patrol to the coast in the Mijim, Malamu area, which managed to establish some observation posts overlooking the Australabi Bay in early March. Hammer also sent the 5760th Battalion to the Papua area in preparation for an attack against sepa Meanwhile, after the conclusion of Operation Dexterity on February the 10th, General Kruger had handed over command to Major General William Gill over the Seder area, and he began to bring over the remaining elements of the 32nd Division. Gill then began plans for a secondary landing at the Yalu Plantation, around 30 miles west of Sador. He hoped to establish a new forward base there and possibly intercept enemy stragglers, trying to bypass the Sador area. The 2nd Battalion, 126th Regiment, led by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Dixon, successfully landed on March 5th. 54 landing crafts unloaded 1,348 men within nine waves, seeing little to no opposition. As the men patrolled east and west from Yalu, they encountered and killed a few Japanese and found many already dead. They would reach Bao Plantation on March 9th, where they ran into a detachment of General Nakai's 3rd Battalion, 239th Regiment. But yet again, we need to shift our attention somewhere else, somewhere we haven't been in quite some time, the Indian Ocean. The commander-in-chief of the Southwest Area Fleet, Vice Admiral Takasushiro had decided to dispatch heavy cruisers Oba, Chikuma, and Tane under the command of Rear Admiral Sakonchu-Nomasa to raid Allied shipping on the main route between Eden and Fremantle. Departing the Linga Islands on February 27, the heavy cruisers were escorted by light cruisers Kinon-Oi and and three destroyers through the Sunda Strait. The raiders were also supported by ten medium bombers and three to four seaplanes based out of Sumatra and West Java which conducted patrols in the direction of Ceylon. Three to four submarines from the 8th Flotilla also monitored Allied shipping movements near Ceylon, the Maldive Islands, and Chagos Archipelago. On March the 6th, the Allies detected the force near the Lombok Strait. Fearing a possible attack, Western Australia was reinforced, and the British Eastern Fleet was diverted. On the morning of March the 9th, Socontro's cruisers came across the 6,200-ton British steamer Behar between Fremantle and Colombo. Upon sighting the Japanese ships, Bayar's captain, Maurice Simmons, ordered that his radio operators transmit the RRR code, in order to notify other ships and allied bases that a merchant ship was being attacked by surface raiders. Tone's signals room picked up the message. The Tone then began signaling repeatedly to the Bear to surrender, but the Bayar continued to flee. This prompted the Japanese cruisers to open fire. Bayar was hit a few times to her prow and stern, killing three crew members. Within just five minutes, Bear's crew and passengers began to abandon ship as she sank. Around 104 to 108 survivors were rescued by the Tone. Following the attack, Sokonju believed it was far too dangerous to continue raiding as the Bayar had sent out a distress signal. Thus, he decided to turn back, reaching Tanjun Priyak on March fifteenth. Shortly after the Bayar survivors were rescued, Sokanju sent a radio message to Tone's commanding officer, Captain Mayuzumi Haro, reprimanding him for taking non-essential personnel prisoners and not capturing the merchant ship. In this message, Sakonju ordered that all the survivors be killed. Mayuzumi was unwilling to do so. He felt it would violate his Christian religious beliefs. His executive officer, Commander Miyajunzuke, also opposed killing the prisoners, deeming it dishonorable. Mayuzumi radioed a request to Sakonju that the prisoners be put ashore somewhere, but this was rejected. The captain then visited Oiba to argue his case, but Sokanju remained unmoved, and he told Miyazumi to, quote, Obey my orders. Despite his misgivings, Mayozumi ultimately decided to kill the prisoners. On the night of March the 18th, all the prisoners on board the Tone were beheaded by several of the cruiser's officers. Miyazumi watched the killings from the ship's bridge, but Mia refused to take part. The number of crew to be executed was between 65 and 100. Following the massacre, 15 to 36 survivors were transferred to Oba. The party sent to Oba included Simmons, the Bayar's chief officer, and several other senior officers as well as both the ship's female passengers. All of them were landed at Tanjun Priak. After the Pacific War, the Allies prosecuted the officers responsible for the murders on board the Tone. Vice Admiral Takasu died from disease in September of 1944. So Takanju was tried by the British in 1947 at Hong Kong, and he was sentenced to death and executed by January the 21st of 1948. Maruzumi was convicted for his role in the killings and sentenced to three years imprisonment. Takanju stated in his affidavit that he was, quote, Retaliating against the execution and inhuman treatment of Japanese prisoners by the Allies in Guadalcanal. Miyazumi stated in his defense that he was following Sekonju's orders. Miyazumi received a lighter sentence due to his repeated request for clemency for the prisoners' lives. Sadly, this was yet again another scene of absolute horror during the Pacific War. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I'm just about to release the third part in my series on General Kanji Ishiwara. This episode focuses on the formation of Manchu Kuo and how Kanji Ishiwara lost control of everything. My Kanji Ishiwara series was originally an exclusive on my Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. And over there you can find 13 plus ongoing exclusive Patreon podcasts. There is currently a poll up for the next subject, and it looks like a very weird story is about to win. The story of how the Japanese military tried to create a Israel in Shanghai. You heard that right. Come check out this rather bizarre story. Operation Hailstone saw what was once called the Gibraltar of the Pacific truck nearly annihilated. She could no longer be counted upon to thwart allied sea and air units in the region. The Australians on New Guinea were not letting up on the retreating Japanese and a terrible and needless massacre took place in the Indian Ocean.